Well, uh, let's, let's begin our study of the Word of God by going to the Lord in prayer first and asking His blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity to gather and study it. We ask that You use it to edify us and strengthen us and encourage us in a world that is wicked and is opposed to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, right now we're in the study of the biblical covenants. And the word covenant means promise, as we've seen. It's a, it's a theological or a fancy or even a legal word for promise. In big contracts, you'll see the word often used by lawyers. At the beginning of a contract, it will say, this party and that by then that party hereby promise, agree, contract, and covenant. It's a, it's a formal way of saying a promise. And so we've studied the Abrahamic covenant, and in that covenant we've seen that it's made up of land, seed, and blessing. And we've seen that out from the Abrahamic covenant flow all the other covenants. Out from the Abrahamic covenant flows the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. Right now, we're in the second of those four covenants. We're in the Mosaic covenant. And this is the promise that God gave to Israel after he freed them from Egypt, but before he brought them into the land of promise. It's the manner, the Mosaic covenant is the manner in which Israel receives and enjoys the blessing and the land promises that are part of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. Well, the way the nation of Israel enjoys the land and the blessing is through the Mosaic covenant. We call it the Mosaic covenant because God made it with Israel through Moses. He gave it to Moses And then Moses gave it to the people. It's also referred to as the Sinai Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant because it was given given by God to the people on Mount Sinai. It's also referred to as the Mosaic Law or as the Law or as the Hebrew word for law, Torah. So that's just kind of by way of background and refreshing your memory of, of where we are in the study. One more item of review Last time we saw five reasons why God gave the Mosaic Law. I've got these reasons here up on the screen. Number one, He gave it to reveal His holiness because the law reflects the holiness of God. In the Mosaic Covenant where God says, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, those things reflect and reveal the holiness of God as we've studied so far. The second purpose was to show the Israelites the inadequacy of their own unrighteousness. The revelation of God's holiness automatically reveals your unholiness. It's just a given. Remember Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he's caught up in the vision, and in the presence of a perfect, holy, righteous God, he feels convicted. Even the slightest of sins convicts him. And so he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, gossip, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I mean, come on, Isaiah, is that really that big of a sin? 
Yes. And in the presence of perfect holiness, holiness reveals unholiness. And so that was the second purpose of the law, to show the Israelites the inadequacy of their own righteousness. The third purpose for the law was to point the Israelites to the way of salvation and fellowship with God. As we've seen, the word Torah in Hebrew, it's true it means law, but at its core it means instruction. It means direction, or as Ron Allen says, it is God's pointed finger. Pointed finger here, walk here. Walk here in the way of Torah. Walk here in Torah's mercy. The fourth purpose for the law was to unify Israel as a nation like a constitution does, like a national constitution does. And the fifth purpose was to set Israel apart from the other peoples, or to use the old language of the King James to make them a peculiar people among the nations. Distinct, distinct spiritually, because they worshipped the one true living God, not the pagan no-gods. Distinct morally, because they were to be holy like God. They were not to engage in the long list of immoralities of their pagan nations. And distinct culturally. Don't eat your pork sausage, Israel. Don't eat the shrimp. Don't eat the oysters. Don't work on Sunday. In fact, don't till your field every seventh year and every 50th year forgive all the debts. What are you talking about? I, 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 that's money that I lent, God. The law has all these unique custom, custom things, cultural things, that distinguish the people from their neighbors. Culturally. That distinguished Israel, distinguished Israel from the Hittites and the Philistines and the Moabites and all the otherites. Culturally, morally, and spiritually. Now, sadly, today, really the only thing that remains is the material part because Israel is in great rebellion. And so the only thing that remains in terms of that uniqueness that God used the law for for Israel is the cultural aspect the aspect that Israelites can see, that, that, that Jews can see and touch and feel. But very often they've rejected the moral component and they have clearly rejected the spiritual component because they've rejected their Messiah. Not all of them, but the vast majority because they're in disobedience towards God. So that's by way of review of what we've seen so far in the Mosaic Law. What I'd like to shift to this morning is the pattern that God used for the Mosaic Covenant. I want you to see the pattern that he followed. Generally, he patterned the Mosaic Covenant after what's called a suzerain-vassal treaty. Suzerain-vassal treaties were very common in ancient times. It was a treaty between a superior and a subordinate. It's not a treaty between two equals. It's not a treaty between the, the, you know, this nation that's powerful and that nation, between the Egyptians and the Hittites, two powerful nations. That's not a, what a suzerain vassal treaty is. It's between a powerful king and his subjects, or between a powerful nation and an, and an inferior nation. 
the ancient Hittite kings were, were well known for their suzerain vassal treaties. The suzerain is the superior and the vassal is the subordinate. The land of the Hittites is not far from the land of Canaan. It's just north and, and west of the land of Canaan. It goes north of the land of Canaan and then into modern Turkey. God patterned the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, after a treaty like this, not because human kings or pagan kings set the standard for God. God doesn't follow us. God doesn't follow the culture. God used a standard like this that belonged to pagan kings, like the Hittite kings, not because he follows them, but because he used it as a teaching aid. It was well known. So he used a standard like this from antiquity because the people would have understood it. The Israelites would have understood it. The elements of a treaty like this are as follows. Number one, there would be a preamble for the suzerain-vassal treaty, a preamble where the king, the powerful, the mighty suzerain, identifies himself. Number two, there'd be an historical prologue that would make some reference to the, to the past history between the two parties, between the powerful and the subordinate. Number three, there would be the vassal's obligations, the obligations of the subordinate. Number four, the treaty would be deposited somewhere, and there would be regular readings of the treaty so the people didn't forget it, so the parties to the treaty wouldn't forget it. Number five, there would be witnesses. And number six, there would be blessings for following the treaty and cursings for disobeying, for violating the treaty. We're going to see some of these elements today, and we'll finish them next time. What you find as you study the law, as you study Torah, is you find many areas of the law identifying and following these elements of a suzerain-vassal treaty. We're going to touch on just a few areas of the law that do that. Just a few passages. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. You remember Exodus 19 and 20 are where God first issues the law. The people are gathered there at Sinai, and they're going to meet God. God says, sanctify yourself, cleanse yourself, and don't touch the mountain. You touch the mountain, you die. Remember, there's, there's this, this impressive and yet terrifying scene in the, these instructions that are given in Exodus 19 that God gives Moses to the people before they will meet God Almighty so that they understand the gravity of being introduced to God, the gravity of a relationship with God. And then from Mount Sinai, God issues the law. And you see this in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. We, re- we begin here in Exodus 20 with the preamble the preamble where the powerful king identifies himself. Because in a, in a, in a suzerain-vassal treaty, it would begin with, this is king so-and-so, the mighty, powerful king so-and-so from such-and-such land. And so in Exodus 20, we see the name of the king identified. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2. 
I am the Lord your God. The Ten Commandments don't begin with the next verse. The Ten Commandments don't begin with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's not the beginning. The beginning is God identifying himself, explaining why you are to follow the Ten Commandments. All Ten Commandments are repeated again in the New Testament except for Sabbath observance. The first element of the treaty is the preamble where the king identifies who he is. And so we see here, before the commandments begin, God identifying himself by his name. He uses two names for himself. One is a general name, one is a specific name. One is the general name Elohim, which means God. And the second is his personal name. The second is there in all caps. Translated the Lord, but it is... Yahweh, your parents gave you a name. Mark, Bill, John, Celia, Sally, Linda. Your parents gave you a name. God gives himself a name. And his name is Yahweh. This is his personal name, his formal name. This name is the most important word in all of Hebrew Bible. There is no other word more significant than the name of God. There's no doctrine more significant, no principle, no precept, no verse more significant, no person more significant than the name Yahweh. It is used over 6,800 times in Hebrew Bible, way more often than any other name for God. It is critical that we understand the significance of this name. And if you studied Hebrew Bible for a lifetime, you still wouldn't understand the significance of the name Yahweh. It's critical that we understand, that we do our best to understand the significance of the name Yahweh and how it relates to the covenant, to the Mosaic covenant. The name Yahweh is connected to the Hebrew verb Hayah, Hayah, which means to be. You can, you can kind of hear some similarities. Yahweh Hayah. Yahweh is the name, the, the personal name of God that he uses to reveal himself. And Hayah is the verb to be. We'll see this in a little bit in Exodus 3. Please th- thumb over there. Actually, let's, let's, let's go there now. If you'll thumb over to Exodus 3. Exodus <clears throat> Chapter 3, the context here is Moses is in exile, right? Moses grew up in the palace, in Pharaoh's palace. He's in exile because he left at age 40, and he's in it because he murdered one of the, the Egyptian guards. He leaves, and he spends the next 40 years in Midian as a shepherd. So he is out in the field, 80 years old, shepherding the sheep. God calls him to serve God. In this case, to serve God, he calls him to free Israel from Egyptian bondage. An unimaginable task for a shepherd. I mean, an impossible task for a shepherd who's been shepherding sheep, who hasn't been to, to Egypt 
for 40 years, there's a new pharaoh, a different pharaoh than was pharaoh when Moses was there. And so God calls a shepherd to go to the most powerful man in the world, in the known world, and to tell that man that his entire workforce, millions of Israelites, are leaving. It's an impossible task for this shepherd. This is the context here. And so Moses asked God, what is your name? What is your name? What is the name that I should give the people? Look at verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3. And then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to go to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, A yea, a share, a yea. I am who I am. Or it can be translated, I am that I am. That's our verb, haya. God says, your name is Moses. My name is to be. That's my name, to be. I am who I am. I am that I am. This name, we're, we're, not, to the, we're not to the personal name Yahweh yet. This is God explaining who he is. And so he uses another name here. A name that is a verb. It's not a, it's not a John, a Mike, a Mark. It's a verb. God's name is a verb. It's to be. That name reveals the beingness of God, the foreverness of God, His eternality. Of course, the Scripture describes Him as the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Keep reading in verse 14. And He, God said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Again, we find our verb to be haya. Then God makes the connection between haya and his personal name, Yahweh. Verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So God says, it's all me. I'm the to be, I'm the I am, and I'm Yahweh. Same person. The beingness of the verb haya is related to the personal name of God, Yahweh. Keep reading in verse 15. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. This, my friends, is an incredible statement. It is an incredible statement from the living God. The name Yahweh is for every generation. God says people are to refer to Him and to remember Him by this name. Now, of course, in the New Testament, God reveals more about Himself, revealing significantly more about the Trinity, revealing more about God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. But our focus here in this study is Hebrew Bible. It's the Old Testament and the Mosaic Covenant. The name Yahweh... God says, that's my name for all generations as a memorial name. And the name Yahweh is also referred to as the covenant name of God. It's his personal name, but we also refer to it as the covenant name of God. That's because it's linked to the Mosaic covenant. We see this in Exodus chapter 6. Please turn there 
in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Excuse me. There we read, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go. He will let the Jews go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. By my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's not that the patriarchs didn't know the name Yahweh. It's that they didn't know the significance. They didn't understand the significance of the name. They couldn't understand it because God would wait to reveal the full import of that name until the time of Moses and the Exodus generation. The import of the name Yahweh, the significance of the name Yahweh, is tied to how God fulfills, how Yahweh fulfills the land, seed, and blessing promises that He made to the patriarchs in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the Abrahamic covenant God makes to Abraham, and then He repeats it to His son Isaac, and then He repeats it again to His grandson Jacob, all of whom are saved. He doesn't make it the covenant to Ishmael, who may have been saved later, maybe not. But the line comes through Isaac. He doesn't make it to Esau, who's not saved. He makes it to the saved descendants of Abraham. Because as Paul said, the true Jew is the one who is racially a descendant of Abraham and also spiritually a descendant of Abraham. And so the name Yahweh, which is tied to the Hebrew verb to be, Hayah, the name Yahweh is the personal name of God, which God reveals in connection with the Mosaic Covenant. That's why we call it the covenant name of God. And he reveals it in connection with the, with the Mosaic Covenant because it is the way in which God will fulfill the promises that he made to the fathers, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh and the Mosaic Covenant, Yahweh through the Mosaic Covenant, I should say, fulfills the land, seed, and blessing parts of the Abrahamic Covenant. And that's why we call Yahweh, the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God, because it's actually related to the Mosaic covenant, how God fulfills the components of the granddaddy of the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant. God revealed <clears throat> His name, the significance of His name, Yahweh, 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He revealed it at the time of Moses. Right? 400 years after the patriarch, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you, you, you fast forward in time 400 years and you get to Moses. You get to the Israelites being in Egypt and the Exodus generation. Beginning with the Exodus, God makes himself known in a way that he had never made himself known before. Beginning with the Exodus, God revealed how he would provide blessing and land and, for that matter, seed to Israel. He would do it by redeeming Israel out of bondage. This is why we say that Yahweh is the covenant, the name Yahweh is the covenant name of God. 
The name reveals His power as the eternal self-existent one. The name reveals His faithfulness as Israel's covenant provider and her covenant redeemer. The name is so important that I think it's necessary to do a deep dive into the Hebrew text itself. To do a deep dive into the Hebrew language. The name Yahweh is referred to as the Tetragrammaton. The sacred Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton is actually a Greek word. It's, it's the neuter form of the Greek word tetragrammatos. Tetragrammatos means having four letters. There are four letters in the name Yahweh. Yod, He, Vav, He. Those are the four consonants. Because the name is made up of consonants. And I say that because all of Hebrew Bible, the entire Hebrew Scripture when it was first written, was written only with consonants. They didn't write vowels. And so when you, when you read Hebrew Bible, the reader had to supply the vowels. I mean, there were vowels in Hebrew language, to be sure. You'd speak, when you spoke it, there were consonants and vowels in the words. And when you read the words, which had no vowels reflected in them, the reader would have to supply the vowels. And that was done by tradition for millennia. For centuries upon centuries upon centuries. Initially, for many, 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 many generations, the four consonants were pronounced. yod ke vav They were pronounced not... When someone referred to God, they didn't say yod ke vav They pronounced the name that those four consonants represent. So Moses... When God spoke to, no, to Moses and he says, my name, you tell them my name is Yahweh. He said, Yahweh. We believe that the pronunciation for the four consonants is Yahweh. I'll get to that in a moment. But so that I am not saying yod Hey vav Hey a thousand times, I'm going to go ahead and say Yahweh. They would pronounce the name. Moses pronounced the name. When he showed up to the elders, when he left Midian, left the sheep, and goes to Egypt, and he goes to the elders of the Israelites, and he says, I am, Hayah sent me. And his name is also Yahweh. He used the name. Joshua used the name. Samuel used the name. David pronounced the name. Nathan pronounced the name. Isaiah, Habakkuk. Jeremiah, they pronounced the name, and then something happened. Something terrible happened in the Babylonian exile, where God punished the Israelites for seven decades. They were punished by God because of their idolatry, because they had become accustomed to the ways of the world, because they had become accustomed to ignoring God. And when you ignore God, you automatically, it did for them, it did for us, you automatically become an idolater when you ignore God. Because he's hardwired, hardwired us to worship. And if we don't worship him, we're going to worship something else, whether it's money or sex or power or Dagon, the god of the Philistines, or Baal, the god of the Canaanites. We're going to worship something. And so the reason for the Babylonian exile is because the people came to ignore God, and so they worshiped the idols instead. And in the Babylonian exile, they got it because it hurt. Because God took out the belt and it stung and it hurt. They got it. But they went to the other extreme. And what they did is they said, 
starting with the Babylonian exile, and we see it memorialized a couple centuries later in the Septuagint, they said, well, we got it. We got it. We got to take the name of God seriously. And we got to take God seriously. And so they go to the other extreme and they say, here's what we're going to do to ensure that we never use the name of God irreverently, to ensure that we never violate that part of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. To be sure we don't do that, we're not going to speak it. We're not even going to utter the name. I mean, that, that, that's a fail-safe, right? How can you take the name God in vain if you don't even speak it? Well, there's a problem there. Because God said, that's my name for all generations. That's my memorial name. When he's talking to, to Moses in Exodus 3, as we just saw. But the Israelites, they go to the other extreme, and they come to the point where they don't even pronounce the name that God told them to pronounce. And so instead, they used a totally different word. Instead of saying the name that God ordered them to use for him, they use a different word. They use the word Adonai, which can be translated Lord it can be translated master. This is why in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, around 300 B.C., Babylonian exile is 586 B.C. <clears throat> they get out of the exile towards, towards the end of the 6th century. They come back home much later in the, in the, in the 500s. And so roughly 200 years, give or take, 200 years or so later, they translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and that's the Septuagint. And so every time that yod Hey vav Hey, the covenant name of God, the personal name of God, is found in the Hebrew Bible, when the, the Hebrew scholars who are also fluent in Greek, when they get to it, they say kurias, which is the Greek word for Lord. And so something gets missed. The personal name of God is described as Lord. Is he Lord? No doubt. No question he is Lord. But that's not the name he said to use to describe himself, to refer to himself. And then we in our English Bibles have inherited this same situation. That's why our English Bibles translate yod he vav he They translate the Tetragrammaton as Lord. Now, it's true they put it in all caps, or I guess it's called small caps. first letter is capitalized, and the next three letters are small caps. It's true they put it in small caps to distinguish it, so that we know that it's, in the Hebrew text, it's not really Lord, it's Yahweh. It's the Tetragrammaton. But then when they get to the word, and I'm talking about our English Bibles, when they get to the word Adonai, they translate it, Lord. It's just they put it, capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d. Why don't we just use his name? Why don't we use the personal name of God? We've inherited this tradition that was given to us through the Septuagint, and the, the, the Septuagint translators inherited it 
from centuries before when the Israelites went to the other extreme. We believe that the Tetragrammaton is pronounced Yahweh, but we can't be 100% certain because for many, 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 many centuries, it wasn't pronounced at all. Most scholars agree that it's probably not pronounced Jehovah. Most scholars agree with that because the pronunciation Jehovah was the result of a misunderstanding of vowel points from the Masoretes. The Masoretes were Jewish scribes from the Middle Ages who meticulously preserved the text. And one of the things that they did was they added vowel points. So the original Hebrew text is, is, is just all consonants, as I mentioned. The Masoretes come along in the Middle Ages, and they add vowel points. It's called, you can have a non-pointed text, the ancient Hebrew text, <clears throat> without any vowels, or you can have a pointed text, which is what the Masoretes did when they put the kind of dots and things which you, you see here. You see here. This is an unpointed Yahweh, yod he vav This is a pointed Adonai. So you've got the Sheva, you've got the, the Holam, you've got the Kamuts. These are, these are, these are vowels. And, and, the, and the Pata. In the original Hebrew text, this, this Adonai would just be these three letters, these four letters, without any dots or marks around them. The Masoretes came along in the Middle Ages and they added, let's just call them the, the points, the dots, <clears throat> and the other symbols around the consonants. They added the vowels, in other words. And they did that to memorialize the oral pronunciation that had been handed down from, tradition, from generation to generation throughout the centuries. But when you have a people who's been scattered to the four winds, a people who have no national homeland... Right after the Romans came in and scattered the Israelites to the nations, you are at great risk of losing your language, of losing Hebrew. But because God is always faithful to the Jew, always faithful to his promises, he moved events to memorialize that language, to memorialize their language. And I believe he moved the Masoretes to do this. Even though the Masoretes were primarily unbelievers, having rejected Yahweh in the flesh, having rejected Jesus. But they come along, the Masoretes come along, they preserve the text, and they add the vowel points to preserve the pronunciation, the oral pronunciation of the text, and to not lose the meaning of the words. Because if you lose the vowels, which are just being passed on from generation to generation orally, if you lose the vowels and you come, come along a Hebrew word with just a bunch of consonants, you don't know what it means because the letters can have multiple meanings. It drives seminary students bonkers. When you're studying Hebrew, you have these flashcards, and there are three letters on this flashcard, and those three letters can mean multiple words. And you're like, that's not the way it is in English. Too bad. That's the way it is in Hebrew. So the vowels are very important and the, he, and the, the scribes, the, the Masoretes scribes who gave us the vowel points, did us a huge, huge favor.
as the Masoretes were adding vowel points, they had a decision, a decision to make as they came to the Tetragrammaton. Right? As they come along the Hebrew text, we're not talking about the Septuagint. The, the, the Masoretes are not using the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scripture. They're using the Hebrew Scripture, the Hebrew Bible that has been passed down from generation to generation. And as they come to the Tetragrammaton, yod Hey vav Hey, they have a decision to make. What are they going to do with the vowels? How are they going to have the reader? Every other word in the sentence, they're adding vowels. What do we do with yod Hey vav Hey? What do we do with these four consonants? And so to preserve the tradition, they add the consonants of Adonai to the four vowels. In other words, they put the vowel points of Adonai. So, here's Yahweh, the four consonants. When the Masoretes come along to remind the reader, when you're reading, don't pronounce Yahweh, to remind the reader, they add the vowel points. See this double dot? The Sheva, they add it here. They drop off the patab for another issue related to Hebrew, which we don't need to, to, to the vowels, which we don't need to get into. They take the holam and they stick the holam on Yahweh. They take the kamots and they stick the kamots on Yahweh. So now when the reader, the, the, those are clues. So when the Hebrew, Hebrew reader is reading along in the sentence and you know, in the year 1500, in the year 1700, he's reading along, and he gets to Yahweh, which now, you know, the original text didn't have any vowel points, but now the Masoretes added vowel points to Yahweh, to the same four letters. And so the reader is reminded, oh, okay, I'm supposed to say Adonai, because it's got the vowel points of Adonai stuck on Yahweh. Well, when Gentiles came along, non-Jews, Christians, with the, 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 the Hebrew Bible, the, Masoret, the Masoretic text, with its points, we read it, Yehovah. Jehovah. That's how it sounds if you're not following the, the clues that the Masoretes gave by adding Adonai vowel points, so you would pronounce Lord, Adonai, instead. So this is how we believe we came up with the, the, the term Jehovah or Yehovah, because you're reading the four consonants, yod he vav with Adonai vowel points that are, that are kind of this hybrid squished together. And so... Most scholars, as I say, do not believe that the way you pronounce the four consonants is Yehovah. We believe that it's pronounced Yahweh. And part of the reason for that is because of the shortened... I know this is, this is pretty deep. I'm kind of diving deep into the Hebrew here, but it's important. The reason for that is because you get a shortened version of Yahweh in a, in a word like hallelujah. Hallelujah. I, I, if I'm totally honest with you, sometimes I cringe when I hear the word hallelujah. 
because it's so abused, right? Because you have charlatans who use that word. And then I have to tell myself, no, 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 no. That's God's word. Don't let them own that. Don't let the charlatans own, own that. It is a beautiful word in the scripture. It's the, the verb halal, which means to praise. And if you want to make a command in the plural, y'all praise, you say hallelujah. Hallelujah. That means praise. Well, praise who? Praise Yah. Hallelujah. Yah is short for Yahweh. And so you see the Yah of Yahweh, a shortened Yah, at the end of Hallelujah. So that's part of the reason why we believe that the four consonants, the sacred tetragrammaton, is pronounced Yahweh. That was a deep dive into some technical Hebrew, but I want you to understand that the name Yahweh is an incredibly important name. It's the personal name of God. It's the name that God told the Israelites to use for him for all generations, the memorial name. And so we have suffered under a great disservice, the disservice that has been passed down of not obeying God, of not using the name that he told the Israelites to use. That's the first element. That's the first element of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, the preamble, where the king identifies his name. The name that we've seen God use is his personal name, which is the name Yahweh. Remember at the beginning of Exodus 20, we saw two names that God used, the general name Elohim and the personal name Yahweh. This takes us to the second element of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, which is the historical prologue, the past history between the parties. Let's get back to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 2. I meant to say verse 2. Exodus 20, verse 2. I'll read the whole verse. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First, he introduces himself. First, he identifies his name. And then he says, here's what I've done. Exodus 20, verse 2. He says, here's what I've done. One of the many things you have to love, of God, love about God is that he gives us evidence why we should trust him. He gives you proof why you should trust him. That's why it is always accurate to say that unbelief is an act of disobedience. Unbelief is a moral decision. Always. And God gives his proof to the Israelites here. He says, trust me because I'm good. Trust me because I've already evidenced <clears throat> excuse me, my goodness to you. And so you should <clears throat> excuse me, trust me on a going forward basis. I've been good to you in the past. I've freed you from Egyptian bondage. And so now trust me, I'm about to give you the Ten Commandments. Trust me. Obey me. 
Obedience is an act of trust. The reason you don't obey God is because you don't trust God. Simple as that. The reason you don't obey God is because you don't have faith in God. Same thing for me. The reason we obey God is because we trust Him. We trust Him to do one of three things. We trust Him to love us. We trust Him to discipline us. Or we trust Him to reward us. The three main reasons in the Scriptures that are given to obey Him. In obedience, you trust Him. In disobedience, you don't trust Him. And so here we see the second element of the, historic, of the suzerain vassal treaty, and that's the historical prologue where God says his past history, I freed you from Egypt. Then we get to the third element, which are the vassal's obligations. The suzerain, who is the powerful king, what he does is he would require obedience from his vassal. God used this pattern in the Mosaic Covenant. If you're being super precise, you'd say that the Mosaic Law begins with Exodus 20, with the Decalogue. The Decalogue is another way of saying the Ten Commandments. You can divide the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, into two sections. The first four commandments are our relationship with God. The last six commandments are our relationship with each other. The four first The first four commandments are God-oriented. The last six commandments are man-oriented. This is how Jesus divided the law. Remember in Matthew 20, when the lawyer asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I cringe every time I see the word lawyer in the New Testament, honestly. Because it's never in a good light. When you see the word lawyer which is what's there in Matthew 22, it means an expert in the law, an expert in the Mosaic law. He asked Jesus, which is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus' response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Matthew 22, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law, and the prophets, close quote. You see, first, the law is about man's relationship towards God. It's a vertical relationship. And then the law, second, is about man's relationship with his fellow man. It's a horizontal relationship. So the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments read like this, Exodus 20, verse 3. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not, second commandment, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, which is the third commandment. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Verse 8, fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh, your God. In it you shall not do any work. 
you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then the commandments shift. Now the commandments shift to be man-oriented, to be horizontal, our relationship with our fellow man. Verse 12, honor your father and mother, this is the fifth commandment, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. Verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Seven, you shall not steal. Eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Commandment number 10. Similar to the way a powerful king would require obedience from his subordinate, from his vassal, in the law God required obedience from his people, first with respect to their relationship with him, and then second with respect to their relationship with each other, with his image bearers. The fourth element of the suzerain vassal treaty is the deposit and the reading of the treaty. In ancient times, two copies of the treaty would be made. And each party would deposit his copy. If you had a powerful nation, the Hittite nation, with a less powerful nation, each of the nations would deposit their copy of the suzerain vassal treaty in their temple with their pagan gods, to be secured with their pagan gods. But this is different, right? Yahweh acts differently. He uses the same pattern, but he changes it. He makes two copies of the Decalogue. He writes it. The text says, Moses said, he wrote, it, they were written out of the rock with the, quote, finger of God. The finger of God wrote the two copies of the Decalogue out of the rock. It's not that one tablet had one through five commandments and the other ha- tablet had six through ten. These are two copies of the Ten Commandments. Each tablet has each has all the Ten Commandments on it, following the pattern of a suzerain vassal treaty. They both have it, but because there is only one true God and only one true sanctuary, first the tabernacle and then the temple in Jerusalem, and now your body, that's the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was first the tabernacle and then the temple. And there's only one true God. What God does is he, though following the pattern, though though using the pattern, maybe is the better way to say it, of the suzerain vassal treaty, he he makes two copies of the treaty. The Decalogue symbolizes the entire law. He makes two copies and he has them put where he lives on the Ark of the Covenant. Right? He has them put in the Ark. And on the top of the, of the ark is the mercy seat, right? And above the mercy seat are the two cherubs. And God, the, the Shekinah dwelt. The Shekinah, Shekinah mean uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for that which dwells. They referred to the, to the special dwelling of God in the tabernacle, then in the temple, over the ark of the covenant as the Shekinah. 
So where the special presence of God dwelt, that's where he kept the two treaties, because there is no other God. The pagan gods are no gods. And the Israelites were to have no other God. And so there's no other place to put the other copy. Both copies are kept in the place of true worship in the sanctuary. Deuteronomy 10.5, Moses says, Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as Yahweh commanded me. This is God using the fourth, using the, the, the fourth element of a suzerain vassal treaty, and yet he's not using it entirely. He uses it only partially, only partially, only a portion of the way the treaty was followed. Because he's doing this not to teach the Israelites to follow the pagan kings. He's doing this not because he's wedded, he's enslaved to a suzerain vassal treaty. He's using the suzerain vassal treaty model as a teaching aid to instruct. And when the model needs to be changed because it would otherwise reflect a pagan aspect of the pagan world, God changes it. And in this case, he deposits both copies of the treaty, the the Ten Commandments, which represented the entire law. He deposits them both in his sanctuary. Now, as to the reading of the law, remember in 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 the fourth element of the suzerain vassal treaty, each party had to read it. I mean, the the Hittite king was to read his treaty, and his subordinate nation that he did his treaty with, there to read the treaty so you don't forget it. Because if you forgot it with the Hittites, there'd be consequences, ugly consequences. God utilizes the same pattern with the Israelites, and he institutes a regular reading of the treaty, or more specifically, a regular reading of the law. And so the priests in Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13, were to read the law publicly, not just the Decalogue, not just the Ten Commandments, the whole law publicly, before the entire nation every seventh year on the Feast of Tabernacles, on the Feast of Booths. That's the first four of the elements of the Suzerain Vessel Treaty. We'll see the remaining ones next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for your teaching aids. We thank you that you utilize things in the world in a manner that teaches us and and taught the Israelites your ways, and yet you also modify those things in a manner that reflects who you are, the only God, the one true God. We praise you for everything that you do, for who you are, for what you are doing, and for what you will do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.